Well, about two weeks ago, I, my wife was in Indianapolis at the Gospel Coalition Women's Conference, and there was a big fire in the Manzanos. Maybe, maybe some of you were affected by. Uh, one evening, I turned on the news after my kids were in bed. I was asleep, or I was, I was the only one awake, and I realized I turned on the news just because I wanted to see images of this fire. I wanted to hear what was going on, if it was creeping further north or what was going on. I realized I think that was only the second time that I had watched the local news in four years here in Albuquerque. And I used to be a local news junkie. This, we, my, the Sherman household, when I was a child, uh, it was the NBC, local Dallas news, and then Wheel of Fortune every single night. I was a broadcast journalism major at the University of Texas, so I was on the production side of our student news. Uh, and I loved the local news, but I realized I didn't realize that this had happened consciously. There was never a conscious decision. But at some point, I realized that I just stopped watching the news. And I think it became clear to me after the story, after the fire, that I realized why. It's depressing. (laughs) Uh, Watching the local news is really an exercise in putting hope in the Lord. It's difficult to watch the local news. Everyone in the world realizes that there is things that are not right in the world. In fact, the world as a whole is not right. Everyone in the world looks for an answer to make things right in the world. Many look at their own unhappiness and say, if I could only get into the right school or get the right car or get the right job or marry the right person or have the better kids than I do right now, uh, things will be better in my life things will be better in the world. And this is not just a problem for lower-income Albuquerque uh, that has more crime in perhaps other neighborhoods, uh, other neighborhoods than ours. We all have an understanding that things are not right in the world, and we all look for answers that will fix it. Many look around at poverty and violence and think that the government will fix it. The more programs and assistance there are, there will be fewer problems. Even atheists recognize that things aren't right. For a good while, an atheist group in England bought ads on the sides of buses, and their ads said this, God probably doesn't exist. Now stop worrying and live your life. We We won't spend any time on how this is a completely inaccurate view of God and how his existence should actually cause more hope than anxiety. But even atheists see problems in the world And these folks were saying that belief in God is, in fact, the biggest problem. If we can eliminate belief in a higher being, then society will actually be better. There are entire sections at what the few Barnes and Nobles left on the planet uh, that are dedicated to self-help. You name your problem, there's a book for you. Oprah, the prophetess of many years, She's losing influence these days, but she certainly was ubiquitous for many years, said this, that the place of connecting to something deeper within ourselves is available at every moment. The more stressful and chaotic things are on the outside, the calmer I have to get on the inside. I can just go inside myself, go back to my center, and remember what is most important. So is this true? Is it true that the problems are on the outside and the answer is just to find our center on the inside? 
that we can look at all of the problems in the world and just look to within. The Bible says absolutely not. We are guilty. The problem is not on the inside, and the answer actually must come from the outside. The short letter of 1 John is all about problems and solutions. It's about fellowship with God, what prevents fellowship with God, and then how things are made right. Tonight, we're going to spend the majority of our time just looking at two verses. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 while also making our way around the rest of this short letter. So let me read these two verses. We'll again quickly ask for God's help, and then we'll get into it. 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Father, would you help us to receive your word? Would you help us to receive it as um, food, as our sustenance, as it provides through faith in your Son life to us? We pray even for those who might not have ever uh, put faith in Christ as an advocate. We pray that they might receive it tonight as well. We pray all these things for Christ. In his name. Amen. So before we actually get into these two verses, let's see what John is meaning when he says, I'm writing these things to you. What are these things? What things? Well, first, John, son of Zebedee, brother of James, was one of the 12 apostles. In fact, his gospel, in his gospel, he gives himself the title, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's one of the three at Jesus's transfiguration. He's there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was at the foot of the cross when everyone else had bailed. He is the one whom Jesus entrusts the care of his own mother to. He is certainly in Jesus' inner circle. He's the same guy who wrote the book of John, or the gospel according to John. There's some controversy over this, whether or not it was actually the same guy. But we see so many of the same language and themes in this letter and in the gospel according to John. Darkness and light, being born of God, born again, the love of God, remaining or abiding in God's love. All of these are throughout both of these books of the Bible. But the reason for some of the confusion about author, about date, about who the audience is, is because he doesn't identify any of these in a short introduction like Paul usually does in one of his letters, identifying himself and his audience and the reason why often he's writing these letters. John doesn't waste any time. He just gets right after it in chapter 1, verse 1, by saying that he was there. He saw, he touched, he heard Jesus. He heard the message of eternal life, and now he writes in verse 3, he saw all these things, and now he's writing to his hearers so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So John says that the reason Jesus came is so that we might have fellowship with God. The Lord Jesus did not come to teach us how to improve our relationships. The Lord Jesus did not come merely to save us from hell. The Lord Jesus did not come merely to save us from our sin. 
But the Lord Jesus came so that we might have full fellowship with himself and with the Father, that we might receive the very life of God. Remember in my gospel, John might say, how I told you what Jesus said to Nicodemus about how you must be born again, how you must receive life. And at the Passover meal, after Jesus washed our feet, how he told us to abide or to remain in him, and we would remain in him, or he would remain in us. The very life of God comes into believers of Jesus like life goes through vines and branches and leaves and fruit. This is incredible. This is incredible shared life and the kind of fellowship that John is describing. I, John might say, and everyone else who is believing is experiencing this fellowship with the triune God. We are daily experiencing fellowship with God, and now we can pray to God like we never could. We are free to talk to him as a good father. We don't need to go to Jerusalem and have a priest sacrifice for us any longer. We don't need to have a priest pray for us any longer. We actually have fellowship, continued, ongoing, and growing fellowship with God. So here's why I'm writing this letter to you, verse 3, chapter 1, that you might have fellowship with us. That is, that you might share in the fellowship with the Trinity that we are experiencing. And if you have fellowship with us, you also have fellowship with God. He then goes on to say that in, chapter, in verse 5, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is where he starts here. After he says why he's writing that we might, experiencing, that we might experience fellowship, here's where he starts, that God is light. We start with God. We start with the holiness of God. If we miss the holiness of God, we'll miss everything else. We miss the reality of the magnitude of our sin. We'll minimize its effects and how it actually prevents fellowship with God as John lays out how several are doing in the rest of chapter one. So now in these two verses, verses one and two of chapter two, we'll just look at the problem of our sin and its solution, the solution for our sin. Very pastorally and compassionately, John turns in verse one and says, my little children, my little children, my, my beloved flock, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Do you see, beloved, how your sin disrupts your fellowship with God? Do you see how your sin disrupts your fellowship with others? Do you see how your sin has caused so much wreckage in and around you? If you can say that sin isn't that big of a deal and that surely God will just forgive you, um, then you don't see all of that, all of those realities of the wreckage. You either don't have a right view of God's holiness or you don't have a right view of your own sin. Therefore, my little children, Look, I'm an old man now. I've lived a long life and I've seen a lot. I've seen the glory of Jesus at his transfiguration. I've seen what God's glory looks like. And it caused me to see myself more clearly. My, my buddy Peter, my dear friend Peter, when he saw God for who he is in the person of Christ, he saw himself clearly and said, depart from me for I am a sinful man. 
And John might say, I've also seen the devastating effects of sin in my life and in the lives of others. Therefore, beloved, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Sin isn't just bad habits or mistakes or occasional slip-ups. No, it's the, it's the brazen, intentional, and utter turning of worship away from God to yourself and to things. Sin is killing you, so I long for you, beloved. I want you to experience satisfying fellowship with God, more than things that promise satisfaction but will never actually satisfy. I long for you to hate your sin and to see it for what it is, as twisted, as ugly, as misdirected, soul-killing worship. This is a problem, beloved. I'm writing to you so that you might experience deeper fellowship with God. Your sin is gigantic. It's, gigantic. it's cosmic. It has fractured your fellowship with an eternal and holy God. So the problem, beloved, is not outside of you. And the solution certainly isn't inside of you. This is a big deal. And he's making a big deal about sin throughout this first chapter and a half or so of this book, and then he will continue on for the rest of the letter. So this is seemingly hopeless. He seems to be just hammering about sin, doesn't he? If he didn't give us a solution, that would be pretty hopeless, and we would be hammered into the, into the dirt. But he doesn't. He gives a solution. So keep reading in verse 1. But if anyone does sin, by the way, all of us, as he makes clear in chapter one, if anyone says he doesn't sin, he's a liar. He's, he's living and walking in the darkness. He, all of us have sinned, he is explaining. So we need to understand a little bit of the nuance of what we've read prior in chapter one. But he says, if anyone does sin, all of us, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So what is an advocate? We use this, right? Uh, in several ways. People work for nonprofits. They're advocates for the poor. They're advocates for um, orphans. They're, they, they speak. They go and speak on behalf of others. The modern courtroom lawyer is a great example of an advocate. The defense lawyer knows the law much better than I do. I would make a fool out of myself and get thrown in jail very quickly if I tried to argue my own case. But the defense lawyer knows the law. He or she, they've passed the bar exam, so they're legally certified to defend me. But what is the defense lawyer doing? The defense lawyer is trying to prove the defendant's innocence. This is often why the reputation of defense lawyers can sometimes be less than stellar, right? Now, I'm a firm believer in innocent until proven guilty, and I think our justice system should provide good lawyers for very guilty people to argue on their behalf. But even when the best defense lawyers and good ethically-minded defense lawyers, they often have to argue for those whom they pretty well know are guilty. Yet they still try to argue the case as if the defendant is innocent. And that's the reality of the charges that are brought against us. I, the defendant, know I am guilty. The witnesses, the spectators in the courtroom, 
even the judge, know without a shadow of a doubt, I am guilty. My defense lawyer knows that I am guilty. But what makes our defense lawyer, our advocate, different than perhaps a sleazy, shyster defense lawyer? That he's not trying to prove my innocence. He's trying and arguing his own innocence. Our advocate doesn't try to show my goodness, the defendant's. He's trying to show his own goodness, an astounding advocate. And what is the title that John gives to Jesus in verse 1? What does he call him? Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is enormously important. In order for God to be just and for Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf to be worth anything, he had to be perfectly righteous, perfectly obeying the law when we did not, perfectly delighting and worshiping the Father when we did not. Jesus lives the life that we should have lived, and then later, only later, only then can he later die the death that we should have died. And having lived and died for us, Jesus Christ, the righteous, becomes in verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now we'll get into that whole world thing in just a minute, so don't get bogged down there yet. But what is propitiation? Simply, a propitiation is a sacrifice that quenches or absorbs God's just wrath. Our sin deserves God's wrath. And not just sin that you experienced in um, as a child or some mistakes that you've made, but your sin an hour ago as you were driving here and were short-tempered and angry with your spouse or your children deserves God's wrath. He cannot tolerate or allow our daily and active rebellion. Sin is completely against the nature of God and he hates it. It's destroying the, love, the world that he loves and created. But if Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, then Jesus quenches and absorbs this wrath. God's wrath against our sin is now poured out onto Jesus, and we are now, for those who are trusting in this cross, in this propitiation, are now not just given a blank slate or a clean slate, but are now looked on favorably by God. Not just moving out of our enemy of God status, but in chapter three, we see that we become his beloved children. I love what Justin Taylor said when he was here for Claris, that justification moves us out of the courtroom, but adoption moves us into the family room. And this is what God is doing at the cross. Look at what John says in 1.9. Go back a little bit. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Now, we tend to think about Jesus maybe as an advocate every now and then. He's, he's, he's interceding for us. And we tend to think of him like going to God and like begging for mercy. Right? He's like, he goes up to God for the 10,000th time. He's like, it's Sherman again. I know, I know, I know. It's Sherman. Uh, I know we've done this like 10,000 times. Can we just do it once again? 
And God begrudgingly lets Sherman off the hook again. I think that's how we tend to think about um, Jesus interceding for us. There's this begrudgingness and frustration in heaven with these stupid, sinful, simple-minded people. But John doesn't say this. He doesn't say if we confess our sins, he is merciful and kind to forgive our sins. I think that's what we think. If we confess our sins, God's going to be merciful. He's going to be kind. But this is not what John says. He says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. J.D. Greer, in his really, really good little book titled Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, uh, he says this, The basis of God's forgiveness of us is not mercy, it's justice. Jesus paid the full penalty for our sin. Not an ounce of judgment remains. It would be unjust for God to hold the sins of Christians against them any longer, for he would be requiring two penalties for the same sin. If your spouse pays the power bill, and the power company sends you the same bill and asks you to pay, you rightly protest that as unjust. In the same way, for God to exact one drop of punishment from the believer for his sin would be requiring two penalties for the same sin. Jesus suffered the full extent of God's judgment. All that is left for me is acceptance. The reason Greer titled his book, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, is because he got baptized four times as a young man. Uh, he would ask Jesus into his heart, continue to see sin in his life, decide that the baptism and that whole asking Jesus into his heart thing, it didn't take the last time, uh, so he'd try again. And maybe the next time, then it'll, then it'll start to do what was promised, Right? Now, so much of 1 John is actually about examining our hearts, about examining our lives, looking for, the, for evidences of God's grace in our lives. But do you see what Greer was doing in his life? And I fear what many of us have done and continue to do. He was waiting to, on his own, clean up his life enough to prove himself acceptable before God before he was actually trusting in the finished work of Christ to make him acceptable. The problem with mere self-examination is that you're never going to like what you see. Why is that? Because we're never going to be fully without sin in these bodies. In fact, the more you grow in grace, the more aware of your own sin you'll be. There is sin in your life that you aren't even aware of right now, that Lord willing, 10 years from now, he will make you aware of. I think if we put a 24-hour-a-day surveillance camera on the, on the Apostle Paul, we would find no evidence of external sin in his life, perhaps. But yet that guy can say, here I am, the chief of sinners. Why? Because he knows God, he's growing in grace, and yet then he sees the reality of his dark heart, even a heart that's becoming more and more like Christ. So if we base our trust in what we are doing and how we are living, in that alone, we'll never find surety. We'll never find confidence in the gospel. 
Here's the reality. If someone were to ask you for your testimony, said, hey, when was it that God saved you? There's a lot of truth to the answer. 2,000 years ago, that's when he did it. He saved me then. If you're a Christian, there was a moment of conversion in your life when you trusted in Christ for the first time. But the work of salvation began and in some sense was finished and accomplished 2,000 years ago. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant I have borne the wrath of God. I have appeased the wrath of God. I have taken the punishment and consequences of sin in Nathan's life then so that he won't have to then. So that you won't have to now. Salvation is accomplished. Salvation was accomplished on the cross at the Mount of the Skull 2,000 years ago. And although we theologically understand the imagery of the cup of God's wrath being poured out on the cross of Christ, I think too often, just like Greer was kind of alluding to, I think we think that God poured out most of that wrath on the cross of Christ about 2,000 years ago, but he left more than a few drops just to hang on to for when we really screw up or when we miss a quiet time several times a week or whatever the case may be. This couldn't be any further from the truth. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins because of Jesus Christ, the righteous, the propitiation for our sins. He has emptied the cup to the dregs. Now, as Trent showed us from James 5 on Sunday, God still does lovingly discipline his children. But there's a big difference in me disciplining my children in love for them because I want them to know joy in their life as experienced in our family and in right relationship to God. There's a difference between loving discipline and me just kind of hanging out in the corner of my house, just keeping an eye on them, waiting for them to mess up so I can pounce on them and condemn them as terrible little Shermans. But isn't this the way that we sometimes think of God? Just waiting just waiting to pounce and condemn. Do you believe that the cup of God's wrath has been turned over and emptied? Are you waiting on God to pour out his wrath on you? If you are apart from Christ, that's right. He will. But that does not have to be the way. God has made a way. He has offered a solution to make you right before him, to adopt you as a son or daughter. Right now, are you trusting in the finished work of Christ 2,000 years ago that finally and fully absorbs God's just anger and turns it to great love and favor? Tonight may be the night of salvation. Do not harden your hearts. Now, what do we do about this whole, whole world thing? This is tricky right? Uh, John, 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This verse has been used and abused in all sorts of ways that actually destroys the gospel of propitiation. This verse uh, many throughout history have used to argue that God's wrath against sinners is universal, universally propitiated so that all sinners, whether, whether or not they hear of the gospel and believe on Christ, they are now all eternally forgiven. 
But we know from this letter and from John's Gospels, um, among countless other places in Scripture, that this cannot be what John means. That God's anger against the entire world has been propitiated. Look at 1 John 5.12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Or John 3.36 in his Gospel account where he has Jesus, where he says that Jesus is saying, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There is still wrath on those who have not believed and trusted in the Son. So what does this mean? Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. If you were with us in our Lord's Supper service two months ago when we looked at John 3... Specifically here in John 3.16, it appears that John is using world, this word world, in a similar way that he did there. For God so loved the world. Like we said then, the mind-blowing reality that Jesus came not only to save Israel, but the entire world is probably in play here. In fact, another quick story in John's gospel sheds more light. In John chapter 12, some Greeks, some Gentiles, they come to worship. They're kind of tagging along with those following Jesus. Philip catches wind of it, that the Greeks are there. There's Gentiles among us, and he doesn't know what to do about it. This probably isn't a good thing, and we should probably get rid of them. So he goes to Andrew, and implied in the text is he's like, what should we do about him? Andrew doesn't know, so Philip and Andrew go to Jesus, and they say, well, what do we do about these Gentiles? Should we get rid of them? After teaching in a roundabout way for a few minutes, Jesus says this in John 12, 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And people there is plural. It's really all peoples. Peoples from all nations across the entire world I will call to myself after I am lifted up on the cross. Not just you, Jewish men, Philip and Andrew, but the whole world. Well, now John, who heard and recorded those very words from the Lord Jesus, is now seeing that happen amongst Gentiles all over the Mediterranean world. The unimaginable idea at the time of God's wrath against the nations being absorbed by Christ so that he might justify and adopt people from all nations from the entire world, unthinkable for a first century Jew. But not just the world's bigness and all of its people likely aren't the only things in play here in 1 John 2, 2. It's not just its bigness, but it's likely its badness too. The world's bigness and the world's badness. This is exactly how John always uses the word world. We see in just a few verses in chapter 2 that he nearly always uses the world to show the place and kingdom of darkness which does not and cannot love God. Look at 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. And yet, this is the world 
that Jesus walks into because of the love of God. This isn't, like we said a couple months ago, this isn't a morally neutral world waiting to receive or to reject Jesus. No, it's an already condemned world because they love the darkness rather than light because their works are evil. And this is the world to which you and I belong to. This was our life in which we were dead to God and hated him. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, has made us alive together in Christ through in 1 John 2, through the propitiation of his blood, and not just for these, um, for the good guys, not just for these ethnic people of God, but for the entire world. If you are in Christ, Jesus came into the world to save you. He came into the whole world to save people of every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. If this gospel doesn't do and stir something into, in you, perhaps the best thing that we can do is hear from his word and then to preach to ourselves. In a few minutes, we're going to sing a song written by Charles Wesley in 1742. And it's a song that we sing to ourselves. I think hopefully you're realizing this, that there are different audiences in in the songs that we sing. Most often we sing songs to God. Sometimes we sing songs to each other. But in this song that we are going to sing, Arise My Soul, we sing it to ourselves. It's kind of weird, but that's what we do. I just wanted you to consider the poetry of this song before we sing it together. I have no idea what Wesley was thinking about, considering a, a passage of scripture that he might have been meditating on the morning that he wrote this song, but I would not be surprised in the slightest if he had just read the end of John, 1 John 1 and the first couple verses of chapter 2. Listen to these words, and I think we'll have them behind me. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. You do not have to be afraid any longer for your guilt, which is great, by the way. But why? Because Jesus' bleeding sacrifice on your behalf appears. The surety of your salvation is standing before the throne of God. And if you repent and believe in his sacrifice, your name is actually written in his hold hands. Incredible. He ever lives above for me to intercede. He is, his all-redeeming love, his, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for every race. His blood atoned for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. He is ever living above for you like a defense lawyer, not arguing on the basis of your innocence, but on his. If you are in Christ, listen, if you are in Christ, this is happening right now. At this moment, Jesus is uttering your name as his, as innocent because of his work for you. Christ, your advocate. Five bleeding wounds, two in his hands, two in his feet, 
one on his side, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me, forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. These wounds cry out. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Don't let that ransomed sinner die. His wounds, as they poured blood, now pour prayers for his people, pleading for your forgiveness. They're effectual, or they are effective. They get what they want in accomplishing your forgiveness, and not just your forgiveness. Romans 8 shows us that those whom God calls, he saves, and those, those whom he saves, he will bring to the end. Don't let that ransom sinner die. His blood still cries for you. His blood will bring you to the end if you are trusting in them. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry is when we trust in the sacrifice of those five bleeding wounds rather than our ability to clean ourselves, that we can not only approach the throne of grace as innocent, God is still a judge and a just judge, but a judge who is now our father. So after he declares innocence, we can curl up in his lap as a, as a warm and safe place the lap of a father. We are reconciled to God. We become his child and we no longer fear that we aren't good enough, that we aren't producing enough fruit, that we perhaps are not saved. And with confidence, we can draw near to God and call him Father, fellowship with God. So, if all of that is true, not just theologically, but emotionally, and practically in our lives. If all of that is true, and yet we are still not moved, oh my soul, arise. Not just understanding these things, but awaken soul to these realities. Behold, with the eyes of your soul, behold the risen Christ, your great high priest, your spotless sacrifice. My soul arise. God owns you as his child. Shake off your guilty fears. My soul arise. We are sufficient to come forward and boldly approach the throne of grace because of him who has made us sufficient. Not wallowing in shame or guilt, but coming forward in confidence but we need to often preach to ourselves and remember what is actual reality. We need to preach to our souls to arise, to respond, to awake to the realities of the gospel. We need remembering because we're forgetful people. And that's what we're remembering tonight. The bread and the cup are symbols given to us by which we remember the meaning of his death. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul gave the church instruction on how they were to practice the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, we read that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a backward-looking meal, back in time, that we might remember what God has done for us through the broken body and shed blood of Christ, which brings propitiation. But this meal is also a forward-looking meal as well. John writes this letter so that we might experience fellowship with God and so that we might not sin. But he knows the reality that we will never be fully without sin until Christ's return. In the next chapter, chapter 3 of 1 John, John says this, and this is our hope, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Finally and fully without sin. So when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, his work of reconciling sinners was finished. But there's a sense in which this regular and ongoing meal that we celebrate together reminds us that this isn't all that we have to look forward to. The bread and the cup representing Jesus' body and blood, they are sweet. They are a sweet, sweet thing to the believer. They are a visceral reminder to us of his love and his grace. But if you think about it, this is a pretty meager meal, isn't it? It's a little piece of bread that's not going to do much to satisfy the belly if you haven't eaten much today. We got a, like half of a shot glass of grape juice. It's not much. It's pretty meager, right? But I think that's the point. We need to keep taking it over and over and over and over and over until he comes. And we will. It reminds us to look forward to his return, to the full redemption of our bodies when we, see, when we will see him as he is and we'll be like him finally and fully. And the meal with the Lord Jesus himself, this is what this meal points forward to. The great banquet at the marriage supper of the Lamb. A meal with the Lord Jesus, which will then not be meager, which will finally be full and will satisfy every longing and desire that we've ever had. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 that by taking this meal, we proclaim his death until he comes.